To shot reverse shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello, and uh, joining me once again via the medium of satellite technology, it's the king of Marvin Gardens. It's Zed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Uh, I'm very well. Yes, uh, I have uh, spent much of the week poring over correspondence from Comic Con to see what films I won't be seeing in the cinema. <laughs> yes, which uh, uh, kind of uh, rabid, sweaty nerds have been telling us uh, in intricate detail on clickbait websites what's been going in trailers of films that we're not really that interested in, but are fun to talk about. Um, and talk about we will. Um, before uh, that, though, we've got a couple of other bits of film news this week. Um, car- carrying on from last week and my general befuddlement at the news that Paul Thomas Anderson is working on a live-action Pinocchio um, and that generally every film is going to be a live-action adaptation of a Disney classic. Um, We're now going to get, uh, and this is not made up, uh, we're now going to get an origin story for the the, uh, genie from Aladdin. Yeah, which is the sort of film where you kind of hear it and you think, I can see why someone might want to make that because it's an interesting world, I guess, if you're just going to have lots of people doing lots of magic. But at the same time, I can't imagine there are many people who want to step into the shoes of uh, of Robin Williams and uh, be saddled with the level of expectation from that. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I reckon you could probably get David Cross because he has got a bit of previous with bluing himself. <laughs> it seems a lazy thing to do pick a popular character from a Disney film, make a spin off of them live action wise I, I can't really see that being very interesting unless Paul Thomas Anderson's going to write it yeah I think they're going crazy with it because also a trailer for the film Joy was released this week and you know Inside Out's not even out in most places and they're already doing a live action yeah, version of one of the characters a gritty reboot of, uh, of that <laughs> um, but yeah there you go. One day it'll all be live-action Disney remakes. Um, we know it's true. Um, in other news, uh, we've had a lot of kind of Star Wars stuff and a couple of uh, this week, the last two weeks. Um, some of it very exciting. We'll probably get to talk about it um, in, in kind of very shortly. But uh, the one thing that slips under the radar for most people is that um, Guillermo del Toro said that he was planning at one point. Uh, I don't know how serious or tongue in cheek this is. Uh, but a spin-off movie, which would be a kind of crime saga uh, based around Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, I think he said that that would be his dream project if he could ever do a Star Wars film. Mm. Because, uh, in his words, he's the character he most identifies with. Right, okay, is that because he eats little frogs out of uh, kind of glass bowls? Yeah, but his are like, there's lots of clockwork involved, Mm. and Doug Jones serves them to him, and you know... Uh, Doug Jones for thought... Bib Fortuna. Uh, I'll call it now. <laughs> he has got that role nailed down. Um, but yeah, that was. I think there was. It was uh, to an extent tongue in cheek. But uh, Guillermo del Toro has so many dream projects uh, in the works. I wouldn't be surprised if to kind of relax, he would just sit there and imagine the epic Godfather or Once Upon a Time in America style story. About a young cut trying to make his way in the world, mm. in the universe. I, th- I think that it's like, from a nerd point of view, um, in like the expanded universe, there's quite a lot of kind of cool stuff about hut space and uh, all that stuff. Um, but then you can't really get around the practicality of the fact that 
It's a giant slug. Yeah, there's not much uh, dynamism. Opportunities. Yeah, there's not much opportunity for like exciting gun battles. It would really have to be, you know, mainly the huts talking in boardrooms or whatever, <laughs> and then uh, other people doing all of the actiony stuff. And while the huts get like type two diabetes and stuff, and just like slowly <laughs> drop off. <laughs> um, yeah, and swap sexes as uh, happens in a couple of the uh, expanded universe things. Mm, yeah, um, uh, th- yeah, we're getting kind of deep into nerd stuff, so let's save that for the Comic Con. Um, <laughs> uh, the one bit of news that really excited me um, this week, uh, a bit of casting news. Um, I very much enjoyed the Lego movie, as uh, I think we both did, and we've talked about it quite yep. a bit. Um, one of the highlights from that is uh, Will Arnett's Batman. Uh, Lego Batman, who does provide some of the biggest laughs in that film. Um, but he's getting his own spin-off movie. Of course, let's fucking just spin-off everything. But that's a spin-off I'm not that uh, not that unhappy about, so it'll probably be quite fun. Even more so, now they've cast uh, Michael Sarah as Robin. Yeah, that is a great bit of casting. Certainly for people who are fans of Arrested Development, it's always cool when the, uh, the casts uh, cross over into other projects. But I think it maybe is indicative of the overall tone of it that they're giving it to uh you know one of the most nebbishy uh actors in existence mm. which uh hopefully uh bodes well for a lot of uh fun awkward robin is useless at everything comedy yeah yeah um i i've been re-watching uh arrested development this week um and uh i just i'm just kind of stunned every time i get into season two just how nigh on perfect that that show is. Yeah, it's a an absolutely immaculate season of comedy, and uh, I think it has the right balance between just the general jokes, like the the jokes in the moment, and all of those extra layers of uh, meta and foreshadowing and everything, which kind of overwhelmed it a little bit when they got into the third season. Mm. It's just, it's just. Uh so kind of dense with kind of jokes and stuff uh, and layers of jokes. And it's still, st- I mean, I've seen that season and I've seen probably all the seasons kind of five or six times and there's still bits I'm kind of just getting or kind of bits that I don't realise were callbacks to earlier things. Um, they're just incredibly subtle, um, a lot of them. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a must be. You know, we've talked about the rest of development enough on this fucking show. Um <laughs> Let's move on quickly. Uh, last bit of uh, news I want to talk about before we get into the meat of this week's episode uh, was the Emmy nominations uh, were out this week, which I think saw Louis C.K. just about fail to be nominated in every single category. Yeah, he was only nominated for five, so it's a, a slack a slack year for him. Um, yeah. Down from the height of, I think, two years ago, where he was nominated for something like 12. Yeah. So, he, I mean, he's in, like, he's got uh, nominated for acting, directing... Um, writing, guest acting, guest directing, what was it? I can't remember, guest hosting, I think, uh, on, on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, possibly. and then also I think writing for a variety special for his uh, stand-up special that came out this year. Mm. Do the Emmys kind of still mean anything? Do they mean anything? Uh, I think they mean something for smaller shows. Like, it's a big deal that uh, Tatiana Maslany was nominated for Orphan Black, which is a show that has a kind of a strong cult reputation over here but has not broken out into a mainstream way but the fact that she was nominated is is a really big thing and it can also signal 
that you know someone being in the the uh, ascendancy like obviously Amy Schumer was nominated for three Emmys and also her show is nominated for another four on top of that so she's obviously that that obviously indicates that she has really arrived as a force to the extent that you know the establishment has to recognize her Mm -hmm. and and obviously it means that these people have a chance to get up on stage and give a big speech at some point which uh, to them i'm sure is means a huge amount is it i mean i've never really seen it the emmy i mean the golden globes kind of get shown over here emmy's always been kind of an american-centric thing um i kind of always think of it a bit like the uh, the grammys where it just goes on forever and there's about nine million categories um but uh, is the Emmy something that like John Hamm and Adam Driver will turn up to? I both I saw they both were nominated, but is it is it something that's generally kind of seen as being like the Brit Awards? Doesn't really mean out. Uh, it's a big deal. It's a really really big deal. I'd say it's more of a big deal than the Grammys are for music and things like that because uh, it's just one of those things where it means a huge amount to people personally, but also it's an interesting barometer of what shows are considered important. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's a few years behind in that regard. Like, uh, like say Tatiana Maslany was someone who people thought should have been nominated every year for the last three years. Um, Parks and Rec has only got its second best comedy nomination this year when people thought it should have got nominated more. They didn't nominate Hannibal for anything. They didn't nominate the Americans for very much, but the fact that these shows that the, it, it still means a kind of a huge amount to the industry insiders and i think does bring attention uh, where it can to shows that are uh, maybe not on people's radar that much mm. although they didn't recognize broad city which is 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 a scandal mm. yeah there that there there are uh, blind spots but uh, this year uh, i think the general consensus is the uh, nominations this year were yet less terrible than usual. Right, okay. Transparent did pretty well, and I'm happy with that. It was a great show from yeah. last year. Um, so, yeah. Uh, even though I didn't really, I only scanned over it and I don't really know anything about the awards, I approve. Uh, well done, <laughs> Emmy voters, whoever you are. Bob Odenkirk nominated for Best Actor in a Drama, which uh, delights me. Cause, uh, oh, a, what, is it for Better Call Saul? Yeah, because I like, I like Better Call Saul a lot. I think it's a really great show. But just the fact that he's been nominated for that uh, before he was ever nominated for acting in a comedy, despite it is uh, very amusing to me. Mm, yeah, not how I'm pretty sure most people saw that shaking out. No, but, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, let's get into Comic Con. It happened last week. Um, the world's biggest gathering of kind of over and underweight dudes um, and like cosplay people, um, which kind of is is a huge deal uh, in a marketing sense. Uh, even though the nerd dollar has been consistently proven to be not worthless, but not worth quite as much as other people think it is. Um, but it was uh, kind of a weird one, wasn't it, this year? There was a lot of hype going into it. We've got some huge films coming out this year, and we thought that there would be uh, a lot of things uh, announced and uh, things kind of uh, rumours put to bed. Um, but there wasn't really a great deal other than people showing kind of uh, sizzle reels or... Um, uh, kind of stuff that we already had seen. Um, people, well, there was a lot of hype and uh, kind of expectation that they would announce the director of episode nine, uh, which didn't happen. Um, there was a lot of things that people wanted, 
people wanted to see trailers for certain things that didn't happen. Um, pe- peculiar feeling Comic-Con. I think it was at least in part because I think Marvel's presence this year was pretty uh, muted, com- muted compared to previous years because mm-hmm. they just had Age of Ultron, Ant-Man came out, so people were doing that. But I think there was just a general sense that uh, they just had a big year anyway, so they didn't really have to do very much. And also, I think that they were seeding ground to their Disney stablemates uh, in, in the form of Star Wars. Mm. But because yeah. Marvel are a big draw and they often have really fun panels, the fact that they were limited primarily to the TV stuff probably meant that there was less of a, a big kind of a, a big thing going on. Mm. And uh, kind of, we'll get to Star Wars in a bit, but um, the kind of the big things that the, the kind of that we did see at Comic Con, we saw uh, some more information about Batman versus Superman, um, a film which. I am yet to be uh, convinced is 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 a good idea. Um, I, as we have discussed, we we watched Man of Steel. Was that last year or year before last? Year before last, two thousand thirteen. That, that was pretty kind of. Was that our worst film of the year? It was pretty close, if not. It it was certainly in the running. It was one. That, I think it was certainly. I think movie forty was movie forty three that year. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, that's going to win in any year, really. But yeah, but Man of Steel was in the same company as Movie Forty Three. Yeah, um, and um, I think a lot of the things that uh, drove me uh, to despair in Man of Steel the the kind of the Jesus stuff and uh, the the kind of po face seriousness of it all um, seems to pervade. Uh, and they've also decided to make it that Bruce Wayne's family were in one of the buildings that uh, was destroyed by Superman, and that makes him angry. Because um, don't, you don't kill members of Bruce Wayne's family because he goes a bit punchy. Yeah, although uh, hilariously in the trailer they show a front page of a newspaper where it says, Dozens Killed, <laughs> which uh, is, as far as uh, kind of damage control for the criticisms about the fact that seemingly millions of people were killed at the end of Man of Steel... Uh, mm. It's is quite a hilarious bit of uh, of spin on their part. Yeah, I think we can safely assume that FEMA weren't in charge of the evacuation <laughs> if only dozens were killed. Um, yeah, um, there's a bit of satire from 2005. Right there for you. <laughs> Ten years too late. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just I've, I I can't muster any interest. For, I mean, Zack Snyder being involved is is probably the principal reason that I'm not interested. Also, I, I actually hate Superman as a as a as a hero. Um, but lastly, like um, I was having a conversation with this uh, about this with a friend the other day. Um, I haven't read a great deal of Superman comics, um, but there is a really good one, uh, and it's called Hush. I don't know if you read that one, Ed. Uh, no, I don't think I have. It's the one in which um, it's a Superman Batman one, mm-hmm. um, but the the whole kind of crux of having them in the same comic is that Superman is in possession of a ring that's made of kryptonite and he's given it by Superman um, on the basis that if Superman ever loses his mind, Batman's the only person who can stop him. And that comic is really cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really good because Superman does lose his mind. I can't remember how or why, um, but you know, Batman's got to kind of bring down this kind of unstoppable force uh, and it's kind of good. But this is just, uh, I don't know, it just feels tawdry and like... I don't really understand why I should care about what's going on. The only thing in the trailer that really piqued my interest was Jesse Eisenberg 
because he seems to be the only person in the whole film who's having any fun. Yes, um, although he wasn't having fun at Comic-Con because he, he equated it to the Holocaust uh, with, I think, tongue-in-cheek, but it didn't go down particularly well. Yeah, that's the sort of thing where uh, when it turns up in print, seems a lot worse than it probably was when he said it. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, it was still probably not uh, an equivalency to uh, to make <laughs> yeah, <laughs> near anyone I, who could repeat it. I do agree. Uh, about uh, in that trailer, uh, Jesse Eisenberg does seem to have kind of come from another film, um, because uh, you know it's all kind of uh, uh, moody looks and kind of uh, uh, you know kind of epic sweep, and they're going for kind of this grand uh, grand scale um, action film with kind of two mighty combatants at its core, and then Jesse Eisenberg kind of comes at the end and kind of undercuts it all with a bit of a bit of a kind of uh, snarky dialogue. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, it seems like he's kind of wandered off another set. I wonder how much of that will make it in, because there was no humour whatsoever in Man of Steel, apart from those dick-shaped uh, rockets that fly <laughs> that flew off Russell Crowe's uh, home planet. I think the, the his appearance suggests to me that there'll be at least 10 minutes of the film that'll be worth watching, which is a big improvement on Man of Steel. Mm, yeah. But still uh, isn't quite enough to really push it over into uh, must-see territory. Mm. To give this a bit of kind of double kind of layering of jokes and intertextuality, have they cast Michael Cera as Batman as Robin uh, in this, and then people would confuse Lex Luthor and Robin? <laughs> because, well, no, let's just leave that joke there. It's uh, it's been done. Um, talking about underwhelming comic books, um, they showed some footage from X Men Apocalypse, I believe, but I don't think has been released to the public, has it? Not yet, no. Um, but we've had some stills, and boy, does Oscar Isaac's costume look stupid. Yeah, everyone, a lot of people have compared it to the character of Ivan Ooze from the live-action, well, no, not live-action, the feature film version of Power Rangers from the mid-90s, which mm. is not a, a good compliment to pay because uh, the costumes in Power Rangers are uh, pretty... Camp. Camp, yeah, and that's not really... That's something that I think Brian Singer has tried to avoid in a lot of his X-Men films because they're all about allegory and everything and that they have a certain degree of seriousness. And in the first one, there is that joke about uh, the fact they wear dark suits and saying, what would you prefer, you know, yellow spandex? Mm. But So to have it go from that to, uh, you know, him strutting around in a bright purple suit and looking, at least in the few pictures that have been released incredibly awkward and like he's ashamed to be there uh yeah maybe it'll work better in the film but uh there was a meme going around showing a cosplayer from comic-con who had gone as apocalypse from the comic books and he looked really amazing and interesting and you know people saying you know what happens when a cosplayer outs as a major hollywood studio yeah um reaction has been pretty kind of vitriolic towards it um but yeah i kind of i was kind of there's also like some girl running around in her pants yes olivia munn uh who... seems out of place for x-men as it's been so far i think other than there is a blue naked lady in most films mm, yeah and it also kind of seems like a move back to the uh unnecessary leeriness of first class which such as the scene where they had rose Byrne just kind of running around in her underwear for no reason mm, yeah um, unnecessary leer- leeriness Matthew Vaughan <laughs> I don't believe it 
Um, like a pervy uncle who's obsessed with uh, like carry on films. Um, <laughs> feels they need more people's heads exploding. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, uh, what that, else? Uh, go on, sorry. Uh, yeah, that that was the one that I think uh, underwhelmed people. Whereas the uh, the Deadpool footage that appeared overwhelmed people by the sounds of it. Yeah, um, and we all know that Deadpool is. Uh, I mean, I don't really know a great deal about it, um, but like uh, comic book types have been uh, clamoring for it, and uh, it looks kind of cool. Um, but it's obviously got Ryan Reynolds in it, so it will be a huge failure. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, he is box office poison. Uh, at the very least, it looks like it'll be more interesting than any of his previous comic book adaptations because uh, people who don't know. Uh, Deadpool, aka the Merc with a Mouth, is a character who's constantly breaking the fourth wall and knows that he's in a knows that he's in a comic. So, mm. And they seem to have taken that tone and really run with it for the film, which could make it incredibly fun, especially because apparently it's very violent and R-rated, but also could probably make it insufferable. It, there, there really are only two ways that that film could turn out. Yeah, and uh, when when do we? How long do we have to wait to find out? Is it next year? Yeah, I think next year. Right. Okay. Uh, well, we'll kind of keep our finger on the pulse and see how that one works out. Um, so, yeah, um, leading us, well, closing off the talk about Comic-Con and leading us into our main topic for the week is uh, the kind of Star Wars uh, panel from Comic-Con. It was uh, uh, insubstantial for most of it. There was uh, They brought out pretty much the whole cast, uh, revealed a few character names, um, brought out some kind of uh, characters, uh, kind of prop, like practical special effects, Um uh, which kind of wowed the crowd, and Harrison Ford came out, and that was probably the only bit of worthwhile stuff from the panel, if uh, you were kind of so inclined to watch the whole thing. Um, but they kind of debuted a sizzle reel, didn't they? Uh, kind of, It wasn't a trailer, it was a behind-the-scenes uh, look. Some of it looked like it had been taken directly from the EPK um, kind of stuff, uh, you know, featured on-set interviews, uh, B-roll footage, kind of cut together really well. But the emphasis was very much on using real sets, uh, practical effects, and kind of assuaging people's fears that it would just be another green screen nightmare. Yeah, it, it very much seems... And this is a sense that I've had from the uh, way people have talked about the film for a long time. It's that they're trying very, very hard to distance themselves from the, the prequels, uh, not to the extent of out-and-out out disavowing it, but mm-hmm. certainly to the extent that they're doing exactly the opposite of everything George Lucas did. Uh, and it kind of puts me in mind of the uh, the way that the Republican Party tried to sell themselves to the to the nation in 2008, where they couldn't out and out say that George W. Bush was a terrible president who did things that were awful. But they also kind of had to say, yeah, we're not that guy. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a kind of an interesting bind that they find themselves in on Star Wars. Mm. Um, and it's it's kind of fascinating how um, they kind of did mention it uh, in the first couple of trailers or around the time the first couple of trailers were kind of uh, coming out. Um, but this Comic-Con panel and this whole thing was, was hammering the point home to a ridiculous degree. Like, I don't know whether they've have kind of overestimated how much people hate the sequel or the prequels or are they kind of just kind of going all out to try and capture the the audience that are now going to be bringing their kids to watch it 
or if they're overestimating how much people really like practical effects. Yes, that's a good point. Um, yeah, um, but it, 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 I mean, this, the the reel looked great, didn't it? Uh, it, it did. You know, some of the it, looked, it felt like Star Wars. It felt like Star Wars, and also I think one of the things that really struck me uh, was just how much everyone involved really seemed enthusiastic about what they were doing. <laughs> Mm. Which, uh, if you've ever seen any of the uh, behind-the-scenes footage of the making the prequels, much of which was used in the Red Letter Media films, but no one seems that enthusiastic about it. Or knows what they're doing, um, yeah. which is quite telling. But um, we're going to lead from this. Uh, we kind of structured this episode in, in, in a way that would talk, lead us into our, kind of our, our, our main topic of conversation, which is special effects, which is... Uh, something I suggested to you last week that we talk about and something that neither of us could kind of uh, believe we hadn't talked about before. Yeah, it's something that I think we talk about when we talk about specific films, um, particularly films that we don't like. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's it's a, a big, huge part of a lot of the films that uh, we loved, a lot of the science fiction and fantasy and horror stuff that made its way onto the uh, alternate 100. And it's just also in terms of you know, assessing where cinema is at this point, it's kind of hard not to talk about special effects. Mm, yeah. And let's just get something out of the way first. Um, film doesn't really exist in history without special effects. Going back to those uh, Melier films, uh, like Voyage to the Moon and stuff, they're all special effects films. Um, people uh, would be wowed by kind of cinematic tricks, even though uh, they didn't look, uh, you know, real. But that's not the point. It's uh, all about suspension of disbelief. Um, and one of the key things that um, launched us onto talking about special effects this week is uh, the release of a video that's kind of going around uh, called The Wetter Effect, which is a very short video that's kind of uh, gone viral, as it were. And it kind of explains um, how CGI has kind of moved us away from realising we're watching a film with a special effect in it to trying to be so hyper-real that our, our mind just doesn't register it in the same way. Um, and we're kind of jolted out of suspending our disbelief. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, video because it explains something that I think probably nagged a lot of people, and certainly because it it starts off with just uh, screenshots of lots of articles about, um, you know, people saying, why are movies so terrible now? Why do effects look so terrible? And then explains in very kind of clear, well-illustrated ways the how that happened, kind of explaining... The point at which it happened, which was in the mid-2000s, and the example it uses is the contrast between the 2003 Hulk, directed by uh, former uh, uh, artist profile subject Ang Lee, and the uh, 2008 Hulk, directed by (laughs) (laughs) never-to-be-discussed director uh, Louis Leterrier. Uh, and, And illustrates that in one scene in Ang Lee's Hulk, there's a scene of the Hulk on a real street in San Francisco, and how... Uh, because it's a single effect in a real location, it looks more convincing because uh, it plays into our own personal frames of reference of, I have seen a real street that looks like a real street with a fantastical thing in it, whereas the the Leterrier version has uh, basically nothing real on screen at certain points. And as such, your brain just registers that this is a a fake thing at the time watching, Mm. even though it's technically more impressive. 
Yeah, it's the the thing that I've kind of always said when you get the like films like an Avatar, for example, um, where we kind of go off on long journeys of bits that are entirely CGI. Um, scenes that are acted out with entirely CGI characters and CGI backgrounds um, and then they will bring a human in you know an actual actor will appear alongside the CGI elements and the human actor looks like a bad special effect mm, yeah. because it breaks that con- that breaks that kind of visual style I mean there's so many films that I've watched that I just kind of thought well why don't you just do the whole thing CGI mm. <laughs> it wouldn't have made much of a difference it would probably be better than what you've done here it just jolts you out of it and that thing about suspending your disbelief um, the point that the video makes is that you know in when you saw a practical effect in the old days you realised it wasn't real but you understood it was part of your world so you accepted it rather than something that looks uncannily real but doesn't look like it's taking part uh, taking place in any recognisable locale. And he also points out that there is a uh, a lot of special effects nowadays sacrifice believability for beauty. Mm. And they try and make stuff look so uh, perfect and, and sleek and impressive that at a certain point it moves past the point at which you could believe that this is a thing that exists in the real world. Mm. Um, I've kind of read something this week that is kind of uh, an explanation to why a lot of special effects films are so special effects heavy these days. Um, And it's a lot to do with um, the way that films are kind of like announced and they have dates and those dates are very, very kind of, they have to stick to those dates kind of rigorously Um, and production schedules are getting shorter. They shoot for much less time and then just turn it over to the CG artists and try and get as much of it done um, from previous material as possible to try and meet these kind of crazy deadlines. I think it was in that Dustin Hoffman article about, you know, films are the worst they've ever been, um, which was a pretty interesting thing, and we'll probably come back to that at some point later in the year. Um, But, um, yeah, I I kind of had something that I hadn't thought about, that now the whole kind of production line of films has changed um, due to special effects technology. Which is one of the things that I think J.J. Uh, Abrams pointed out at Comic-Con, or, or certainly in an interview around it, was he said that uh, they originally wanted the film to come out in summer, they being Disney, because it's obviously a big a big event movie that you could put out in the summer, and he pushed for it to be delayed until uh, December because he wanted more time. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's something that, uh, again, you know, to go to the, back to the Hoffman thing, it's certainly something that doesn't seem to be afforded to most filmmakers now it, because like mm. you say if you miss a release date uh it can have uh disastrous effects in terms of bad press and uh you know maybe hurting the film's production uh performance at the box office but at the same time it also means that uh there's a, a higher chance that the end result will not be particularly good mm. yeah um do you think that um that's going to cause a problem for for something like um, episodes eight and nine, for example, because they are originally locked into those dates now. Uh, or do you think they built in that time that they want to kind of get them right? And it won't. We won't have a thing like always. Oh, kind of brought back to the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, the first film, there's hardly any effect shots in there. Well, not hardly any, but there's a markedly few. I think it's like a third of the amount than there is in the last one. And you know, the last one they were kind of covering so much ground and and were so pushed for time. Um, 
that there's just so much CGI in there. It it, it feels like a completely different film to the first one. Uh, I think that it probably there there's a better chance of those ones being harmed by it because again, you know, if you're stuck to that release date and they're only just in pre-production now and, it, you know, it, it seems like a long time, but I think when you're dealing with those levels of special effects, it's, uh, there's a high chance of problems coming up and that if they don't have much flexibility to actually work those problems out, then, uh, then there's less chance of them, you know, fixing them before the films come out. But also if, you know, episode seven is operating under, you know, there's a lot of expectation. There's a, people are wanting it to be really good. And if it turns out to be great, then, uh, eight and nine have got to maintain that. And if they're being directed by different people and it's got different uh, brain trust behind it, uh, then there's a chance that they won't match up, measure up because now they've Mm. got to meet the expectations set by episode seven. There was something in the sizzle reel, um, the kind of episode seven stuff that um, kind of made me remember something that is kind of starting to fade out of films is, we're seeing a lot more CGI stunt work nowadays than there is uh, kind of practical stunt work. And it seems to me like one of the most obvious things you'd want to remove um, from a film's production, which is the chance that someone might die um, to, to, you know, kind of be removed uh, entirely. But it's one of the things that just looks the worst when it's done badly. Um, I think uh, there was a big moment in, uh, I can't remember which Bond film it is. One of the terrible Bond films of, that uh, Pierce Brosnan did. There's, like, there's a big CGI bit where he's paragliding, um, and for a, for a franchise that like relies so heavily on and proudly on practical stunts, it, it stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, but uh, CGI has kind of taken a lot of the danger out of filmmaking, but has also, as a result, um, made it look less tangible and less real. Yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons why, for example, uh, the trailer for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation got a lot of attention because uh, the Mission Impossible films have always had a lot of practical stunts in them. And this one has Tom Cruise actually hanging off of a fucking plane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the fact that that's a real thing, similar to how uh, him actually climbing up that massive skyscraper in the fourth one or... Uh, the physicality of some of the effects in the third one, the the fact that someone is actually doing that and it's actually, you know, world superstar and slash probably probably crazy person Tom Cruise doing it, you know, says, you know, that that means a lot. And I think is is the reason why that happens is it's something that is genuinely quite rare these days to Mm. see someone doing actual stunts and that person be the person who's meant to do it rather than a stunt double with someone's face awkwardly CGI'd onto them. Yeah. I think some of the worst uh, examples I've seen of that is, um, in those Star Wars prequels, (laughs) which, you know, we like, um, all of Christopher Lee's sword fighting and lightsaber dueling is done by a, you know, cause he, you know, he was an old guy and he was like in his eighties then. Yeah. Uh, Obviously hasn't really got the, the kind of, uh, the mobility to do it. So they kind of, CGI someone's head on and even in those films where everything looks fake um uh that looks really bad yeah and and also um that kind of gets into an area that I find very interesting but I think is somewhat under discussed in terms of uh CGI and practical effects is that um 
there is a clear difference in the acting in films where there's lots of CGI versus practical effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, again, is pointed out in the Red Letter Media video is that because the characters are walking around on blue screen where there's basically nothing physical for them to interact with, most of the scenes in the film involve people either sitting down or walking very slowly through a hall or something. And mm-hmm. that means that there's basically no physicality the actors can bring into it. And it's not just the fact that they're talking to a tennis ball or something, which is something that I think actors have the uh, imagination to overcome. And you can get good performances from people just talking to inanimate objects or whatever. But if they don't know what they're walking through and they don't have any frame of reference, then you basically take away 90% of their ability to give a good performance. Mm. You know, it's not just about eye lines. There was a a really kind of uh, telling interview that was released in the wake of The Phantom Menace, I seem to remember reading. Um, It was either Terrence Stamp or Malcolm McDowell. Uh, Oh, hang on, is Malcolm McDowell even in the prequels? Uh, Ian McDermott, I think he might be in Terrence Stamp plays the Chancellor who gets uh, overthrown. Yeah, it's definitely Terrence Stamp. Uh, I get those two actors mixed up anyway. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Terrence Stamp was talking about how excited he was. He he wasn't really fussed about the film. Um, And, you know, we saw it, so we know why. Um, But uh, he wasn't really fussed about it. He really wanted to work with Natalie Portman, and that's why he took the job. And he said he turned up on set, and there'd been no rehearsal, because he wasn't part of the rehearsal process. You know, day players and kind of bit part people are generally not uh, part of that kind of process. Um, But he turned up and they told him on the day, oh yeah, Natalie Portman has had the day off today, so you'll be acting opposite this stick. (laughs) And he was like, oh, great. (laughs) Um, And I I can totally see how, uh, uh, whilst... You know, working in the theatre, you are using all of your imagination. You know, you we've all seen theatre performances, which is you know, you know Macbeth or something set and kind of completely minimalist, just on a blank stage, a black box um, uh, setting, and you know it's all there. They bring kind of uh, bring it to life. Um, so those guys are experienced doing that. But you know, you're always going to get a slightly flat, emotionless performance than if you've got at the very least someone. Uh, you know, stood behind the camera reading their lines, not you looking off into the middle distance at a tennis ball stuck to a green screen. I think a good example of what having an entirely CGI set takes away is if you compare performances in films like that to, say, the performances of the characters in The Abyss, which Mm -hmm. is not a film I'm a particular fan of, but there are scenes in it where they're essentially having to address a character who is just liquid, uh, just kind of sentient water pretty much. But because they're in a real location and they know what's going on around them, then they don't have to use, they don't have to worry about, you know, oh, am I going to be walking on something here? Am I going to be, uh, you know, what what is happening around me? They can see everything around them and then it's only one thing they have to imagine. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the being unable to see anything that's being, that's going to be created around you and is going to be added in later, you know, it is something that, you know, it's like depriving actors of four of the five senses. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's not really a good look. Um, do you think that um, films that are kind of rely so heavily on CGI um, are open to the most directorial tinkering in the sense that if you do have um, this kind of environment where you can kind of do anything you want, um, the only limit is your imagination? 
um, it just kind of leads to just a mess of, of kind of overloading so I mean I'd bring up Lord of the Rings again um, you know Return of the King uh, whilst it is the big kind of emotional climax and action climax of all three films uh, it did seem a little bit like let's just throw the money at the screen and, and see what sticks let's make uh, Orlando Bloom shoot an elephant and surf down its trunk yeah it definitely does I think it also removes the possibility of spontaneity Mm-hmm. Um, because everything has to be so rigorous uh, and everything has to kind of match up. So you you uh, take away, you know, some of the magic of filmmaking is responding to just stuff that kind of happens and then go- and, and rolling with it. Whereas if everything on screen is just created in a computer, then by its very nature, you have to remove that, that real human element. Mm. And let's, I just want to be clear to everyone here, we're not, in any way demeaning the work of computer animators because films that are animated entirely with computers are beautiful. Uh, you know, there's there's many kind of, uh, all the you know Pixar films and many other kind of uh, holy CGI films are incredible to look at and, and uh, in no way kind of uh, any less of a, uh, a kind of artistic um, standard than kind of hand-drawn animation. I think that, that kind of conception is, is, is a nonsense, really. Um, but um, it was my kind of, general feeling is um given that there are films entirely composed with computers you know feature length films um like you know putting any pixar film or any of the new disney films are all entirely cgi that combined with how much cgi there is in films we're at a point where no one is impressed by special effects anymore which was kind of the problem that uh, jurassic world had with a lot of people that jurassic park wowed you because you saw a dinosaur on screen and it's looked real and it kind of it worked in its context and Jurassic World even though it does kind of make a a referential point at that in the film about people being kind of not interested in dinosaurs not interested in in these kind of what should be a huge spectacle anymore um do you think that's the case I mean I certainly do I certainly think that like if you go back 10 years and a big special effects film came out people would talk about it in terms of oh the special effects are raising you have to see that on the big screen whereas now it's you know they're, they're just making the screens bigger they're just IMAXing everything to kind of make it bigger because the special effects aren't, aren't that, that exciting anymore uh, yeah I definitely think, think that that plays into it um, you were saying like uh, about CGI involves a lot of uh, you know a lot of work and a lot of creativity to make it happen and, and CGI is it's an important tool for filmmakers. And I think the problem is that it's a tool that is often very badly used. And it's also a tool that is overused. Um, mm. It's like a particular spice in a di- in a meal. You know, if uh, a meal is entirely covered in cinnamon, it becomes uh, impossible to eat. And I think mm. that that's uh, the point that you reach with stuff like Jurassic Park and uh, Jurassic World, sorry, or uh, Avengers Age of Ultron, where you're doing things that, wouldn't be feasible uh, with practical effects. But the over-reliance on CGI uh, just makes everything kind of a wash. And I think that that's one of the many reasons why I think people went absolutely crazy for Mad Max Fury Road. Mm -hmm. Because that was a film that wasn't entirely practical. If you see the stuff um, uh, online, you can see that there's lots of composite shots. But there is a shit ton of practical effects in that film. There's cars that are actually going very fast that have actual actors walking on them, has actual actors having to 
interact with each other while those cars are going very fast. It has lots of real explosions in a real desert, you know, and it, it and the uh, the practicality of that, the physicality of that, is what makes it so exciting because there's an actual air of danger to it. Whereas mm. there isn't really an air of danger in any part of Jurassic World because it's all just computers doing stuff, and also it removes the sense the, the question of how did they do that which is a thing that is a big part of special effects and has always been a big part of special effects um you know as audience sophistication has has grown people have become uh more aware of how special effects are done so it, but but the the magic of it is you see something and you think my god how did they do that when people hadn't really seen films and they saw like some of george melier's films the idea of like a disembodied head walking around people had no idea how they did that and I think with most special effects, there's no kind of, oh, how did they do that? You just kind of go, oh, yeah, computer, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that um, CGI has meant that aesthetically films these days are just much uglier than they used to be? Uh, I think, in a way, they've they've become uglier for through being more beautiful because... When you take like like saying about that the, the when we were saying about that video, if everything on screen is just kind of perfect, it just becomes uh unreal and you know it may be and, and that takes away some of the character and the personality of it whereas if you watch uh, i don't know something like the red shoes or something or or those old Powell and Prescott burger films or any uh, kind of fantasy film before the onset of of c g i the imperfections of it all are what kind of give it a tactile quality or, or you know, the, the, the peak of physical effects and John Carpenter's The Thing, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, the, the effects in that are horribly ugly, <laughs> but they are meant to be ugly because it's a horribly disgusting film or any of, uh, you know, like Stuart Gordon or Brian Usner's films. Um, mm-hmm. The fact that they're ugly effects is what makes them real because they have the imperfections of real life. Yeah, if real life involves like a spider eel sprouting out of a dog yeah or, yeah. or uh the bodies of rich people forming a gelatinous mass to oh, devour God. the poor that that makes me feel quite ill uh if i think about the film society because that is probably the ickiest film i've ever seen in my entire life a lot of fun though yeah it's, it's good fun it's good fun and uh if you've ever wanted to see billy warlock in a in a feature film that's the time to do it um um what uh, kind of key special effects um, do you think kind of still stand out and look great today? I mean, the obvious ones I can think of, um, you just mentioned the thing there, um, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, and things like American Wealth in London. Um, if today were those for those films made, would it be kind of out of the question that they would be done practically? Uh, I think that they probably certainly American Wealth in London wouldn't be, I guess. Certainly based on American Wealth in Paris, mm-hmm. um, which was made fifteen years after that film and uh, eighteen years ago now. Jesus, yeah. um, wow. where everything in that film I think is is CGI in terms of the werewolves, except when people are actually uh, turned into werewolves. When I think there's some physical effects and stuff, but yeah, it would overwhelmingly be uh, be. Uh, digital uh, CGI stuff, and it would be. Uh, there, I think there'd be less less personality to it as a result. Um, mm-hmm. But then again, I think it's 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 hard to judge because I think if they're being made now, they'd be being made by different filmmakers. 
Like mm. if if uh, you could just transplant Stanley Kubrick to now, I think he probably would try and do as much of it practical as possible because that's just his his grounding. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things I think in assessing the the kind of progress of of CGI versus practical is that if you look at the the people who really advanced it, a lot of them were uh, directors who are actually older rather than uh, people you think you think oh you know this new technology it's going to be taken up by young people. Mm. But uh, in the certainly in the case of someone like George Lucas or James Cameron, um, or even like in a small scale, someone like uh, Tim Burton or Terry Gilliam, people who had been working for a very long time and felt they were never able to realise their visions were these people who tended to go overboard when they were given access to that sort of technology. Mm. Kind of the first two you mentioned, uh, the thing that connects them other than their age, is the fact they're both megalomania, me- megalomaniacs and millionaires. Yeah, that helps. Mm. Yeah, and they just kind of want to outdo themselves. So, I mean, I always wondered, like, uh, George Lucas... I mean, the thing that people forget about George Lucas and Lucasfilm and uh, ILM and all that kind of stuff is that they advanced film technology so much. Things like um, uh, digital editing suites... Uh, pretty much every advance we've had in film sound has come from that. Um, so it does kind of always um, kind of stick in my craw a little bit when people are so quick to jump on George Lucas um, uh, about his kind of technological advances because he has pioneered most of them uh, outside of CGI. It does make it even like weirder that his use of CGI is so uh, kind of obnoxious and horrible. Yeah, I think it, it seems to be a case with... Um, those guys, I think because they were so excited to finally be able to, you know, make the Titanic look real-ish. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, they were able to finally make their space opera, as you know, or, or fix their old space opera and all this sort of stuff. That they just went completely overboard and kind of ended up being consumed by it all. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, certainly in the case of James Cameron, I feel lost sight of the fact that what made a lot of his early films really great was they had really cool practical special effects in them. Uh, yeah. or, or, you know, in something like Terminator 2, they had a great mix of the two. And, you know, they had the yeah. real stuff seamlessly integrated with this amazing state-of-the-art digital stuff. Mm. Uh, and I feel like... Uh, 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 and it does make me wonder if uh, we will see uh, a kind of backlash against that as people who, you know, are in their 20s and 30s now who are starting to come up start maybe are sick of the the digital stuff and decide to return special effects because those are the kind of films they grow up loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it will be a widespread thing, but it certainly seems to be a case that a lot of those younger directors are trying to be more physical in some way. Mm. Um, I'll tell you something for free. Um, I always think digital bullet hits will always look shit. Yeah, um, and they always go like, like I. It really annoys me in in the film Pan's Labyrinth, the film I love. Like pretty much all the bullet hits are digital, and you can tell they look digital, and they don't look very good. Uh, the Departed has got some of the worst I think I've seen, um, and I know that like using squibs can be dangerous and time consuming, but mm, the alternative doesn't look very good. Yeah, I watched a, a film the other day, an amazing film actually by Johnny Toe. The uh... Uh, I believe Hong Kong filmmaker who made a film a few years ago called Drug War, which is a mm-hmm. really great thriller, and he's directed a bunch of of really cool films. But he he directed a film called uh, Exiled, which has a lot of fantastic gunfights, a lot of really great um, 
kind of really tense action scenes and they are all ever so slightly marred by the fact that there's lots of uh, clearly CGI blood splatter going on. Mm. And it really just looked like at certain points someone's just kind of got um, you know, red paint and just kind of thrown it on the screen. And it, mm. and it never looks as cool as, you know, an actual squib. You know, if you're watching uh, old John Woo films and there's uh, squibs going off anywhere, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Although I think probably the actor who doesn't want squibs is James Khan. Because I think, I think he holds the record for being the most squibbed actor in The Godfather. <laughs> he had like dozens and dozens going off and they're, they're real explosive charges. Um, so it probably hurts quite a lot. Um, to get murdered at a toll booth, um, yeah. So special effects, um, kind of a weird one. Uh, like films a technological medium, and it'll always use technology to tell the stories. But you know, it sucks when uh, you know story is surpassed uh, by a digital tomfoolery, which uh, no one's fallen for, um, least of all us. Uh, let's do uh, shot reverse shot recommends. What you got this week, Ed? Uh, it's actually works quite nicely with just the, the tail end of our discussion there because uh, one of the film I'm going to recommend is a film that was produced by George Lucas uh, in the 80s um, and it's a film called Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters directed by Paul Schrader who uh, is probably most famous for co- for, for writing uh, films like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and then directed a bunch of interesting films like American Gigolo and, uh, and um, Blue Collar and things like that. Uh, and uh, Mishima is a film I've wanted to see for a while and this is probably it's now probably my favourite of his films um, because it's such a stark departure from a lot of his stuff uh, a lot of his stuff is kind of uh, kind of shot very minimalist and, and real and uh, Mishima which is about uh, the in a kind of a framing device it's about the last day in the life of a man called Yukio Mishima who was a probably the most important Japanese writer of the 20th century. And in 1970, he tried to stage a coup d'etat because he was a kind of crazy nationalist who believed in the code of the samurai to a, a ultimately fatal degree. Um, mm-hmm. But the film tells that and then it flashes back to his uh, childhood, which is shot in great black and white, but it also features adaptations of uh, three of his novels, which are kind of interspersed throughout and they're shot in a kind of lurid and expressionistic way with minimalist sets and it's um really uh it's really wonderful and powerful film about uh the way in which the uh, artist of someone can reflect something of their inner life and trying to uh, try to understand someone who would do a uh, on the face of it insane thing uh through the work they left behind and uh, i found it to be uh really quite uh, powerful mm. It's a film I've wanted to see for a long time. It's uh, it's kind of difficult to get hold of. Uh, it's not really been widely available, um, but I shall keep an eye out for it uh, when it does appear. Um, I'm going to recommend this week um, a couple of films, um, all spawned off the fact that um, the, both of us this week watched uh, the film Lost Soul, uh, the documentary about um, Richard Stanley's uh, doomed attempt to make um, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which I kind of wish we'd have seen before we did the unmade films. Uh, podcast. Um, if you don't know, Richard Stanley uh, is a kind of uh, English South African, I think, uh, a filmmaker who did a couple of really cool and interesting indie films. Um, uh, and off the back of that, he kind of somehow landed. He pitched the idea of of doing a, a kind of a new version of the Island of Dr. Moreau, which was, and his ideas for it were kind of pretty far out and kind of 
uh, pretty kind of uh, weird and interesting. And um, somehow the studio said yes, but then it suddenly kind of snowballed and started to attract uh, bigger stars and bigger budgets. And it got to the point where he couldn't handle it. And then from there, um, the story gets a bit weird. He ultimately doesn't get to make the film uh, he wanted to make. He doesn't get to make any film at all because he gets fired. Um, but the, the, the tale of what happens and how is pretty goddamn fascinating and I knew some of it but the film uh, Lost Soul kind of illuminates um, uh, the bits I didn't know which is awesome it's on Netflix so check it out but that's not the film I recommend I'm going to recommend his first two features that he made uh, the first one Hardware and the second one Dust Devil both of which um, you know could easily have been uh, generic straight to video kind of shockers but are elevated by some kind of really inspired design and some incredibly perverse thinking uh, some of the decisions in both of those films are uh, as perverse as a pink pickle as they say um and uh, makes them kind of um kind of fascinating in in kind of every respect uh kind of films that like kind of seem so generic that they don't have any right to be in any way uh individually uh kind of artistic or, or notable but they both carve themselves out a uh, a rather kind of odd niche and I'd recommend seeing both of those films, um, particularly Hardware, which looks like a Terminator knockoff, but it's just way more than that. Uh, and there's a robot with a with a, a drill penis, <laughs> which, which is quite something. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's recommends for the week. Um, yeah, that's it from us really. Um, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes and uh, Stitcher, and what's the other one? I always forget. Uh, Radio FM, I believe. Radio FM, uh, which sounds pretty antiquated. Um, and uh, if you like the show, give us a review. Um, and if you don't, go fuck yourselves. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week. I think we're going to do the uh, another artist profile. It's been a while, so we're going to do uh, two back-to-back. Uh, it's Eddie Murphy next week, and that's a good one. Um, so uh, until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>